Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. Today, I'm really excited because uh, we have a special guest speaker today. I could tell you a lot about her. She is a a part of Gateway Church in Dallas, Texas, one of the largest churches in the nation. And uh, she's a professor at the King's College and University and Seminary there, where her husband is a vice provost of academic affairs. And she teaches at the college. She teaches uh, classes in the the church. She is a sought-after retreat speaker all over the nation. But the thing I want you to know most about her is she is one of the people that my wife and I love and trust the most in this whole world. We have known them for a long time. I've actually known her, her husband since a freshman in college. They are the people that we trust and love almost more than anybody in this whole world. My wife has, even though we no longer live together in the same city, uh, we were in Oregon for, together for a while. We moved all over. They still call and pray weekly, and, uh, and we're just so thrilled to have her today. So would you give a big, warm quest welcome to Julie Cole as she comes to speak today? so great to be here. Normally on Sunday mornings, your first service, it's 8.15 where I live in Texas. I'm watching you on Facebook Live. So it's good to be here live with you today. Wendy and I were doing the math yesterday and we have known each other for 21 years. And when we first met, it's like our hearts just bonded because we're both counselors and we both needed just a safe place to share our lives and pray for our families and Remember, I was going to a conference I had to go to for my continuing education, and Wendy agreed to keep my three children. God bless her. <laughs> little kids, they were. And she had two little ones. And this was when we were just getting to know each other. We were chatting after I was picking up my kids, just talking about how much we needed a prayer partner, but how would we pray with these five kids running around? So we decided we'd call each other. And I remember Wendy saying, can you pray on the phone? And <laughs> And we proved you could. And we did that for a while. And then um, Derek got old enough to go to kindergarten. And Elise was old enough to play with my daughter and play dress up in the other room. And Jared was usually tying our legs together and pretending that we were his, uh, we were aliens that he was taking captive. But it didn't matter. (laughs) We were still praying with each other. And we did that as our kids grew up. And after Ross and Wendy moved to Ohio, we continued to say, we're going to pray together. So Wendy has been my Thursday lunch break for years. And we just pray for one another and for each other's homes. So it's great to be here. Ross mentioned that uh, I work at a Christian university. And working with Christian students that feel called to ministry is my sweet spot. And my hope is that when each of those young pastors graduates from our school, that they have better tools and they have less baggage. (laughs) And I feel the same way about being here today at church. Most of you are here because you want to be. (laughs) Maybe some of you got a holy nudge from a parent or a spouse, but you are here. And God wants to meet with you. And so my goal here today is a simple one. It's to facilitate space for you to meet with Jesus. 
So I want to start by asking you a question. When is a time in your life that you've encountered Jesus? And some of you may not know, and that's fine. But some of you do. And it's more than just knowing about Jesus, isn't it? It's that time when you know he's in the room, he's right beside you, and he sees you. Maybe there's something he wants from you. Maybe you just sense his peace. Whatever it is, you've encountered Jesus. And one thing's for sure, when Jesus shows up, things change. We change. Well, this morning I want to give you a chance to go with me and take a closer look at a story in scripture about a woman who was changed by an encounter with Jesus. We know her as the Samaritan woman or the woman at the well. And you can find the account in John 4. I'm not going to go through the whole account right now because we're going to do it piece by piece. But you can find a lot of artwork that depicts Jesus with the woman at the well. And I chose this one because it just shows that intimate moment. You can tell Jesus is explaining something to her and she's just all ears. He's got her complete attention. But let me set the stage for you of how this conversation came about. Jesus had been in Judea, and he was gaining popularity with the people. And so more and more people were coming to his disciples to be baptized. And the Pharisees did not like this. So Jesus decides he needs to leave Judea and travel to Galilee. Well, to go that day from Judea to Galilee... The shortest distance was through Samaria. The problem with that is that Samaria was not a place that religious people liked to go. And that's because Samaritans were half Jew, half Gentile. Their race came about when the Assyrians took the northern kingdom of Israel captive in 721 B.C., And certain Jews stayed behind and intermarried with the Assyrians, and they produced their own religion. The Samaritans had their own temple, their own copy of the Torah, which is the five books, first five books of the Old Testament, and they had their own religious system. They disagreed with the Jews where the right place to worship was. And so because of these differences, Jews just didn't associate with Samaritans. Well, for most people that day, the trip from Judea to Galilee was made on foot. For those of us to go travel on foot somewhere, our average speed is three miles an hour. So it took about a week. It wasn't a minor thing to decide that you wanted to leave the area in that day. The Pharisees and other good religious people took a longer route. You'll see a dotted line there through Perea. It added three days to their journey. So Samaria wasn't a destination for Jews. If necessary, it was just a place to pass through. But in our story, in John 4, it said Jesus had to go to Samaria. This seems to indicate that it was imperative that he go through Samaria. I wonder why that was. Maybe he didn't want to go the long way around and meet any Pharisees. Maybe he just wanted to save time. Maybe he knew that there was an assignment for him in Samaria. 
could have been all three of these reasons, really. But once Jesus gets to Samaria, Scripture says he stops at a place called Sychar, which in the Old Testament was known as Shechem. And he stops on a plot of ground that years ago Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And he sits down at a well there. I don't think this was just a random pit stop. There was so much rich history that had happened in this place before the Assyrians took it captive. We're told in Genesis 12 that Shechem is the very place where Abram built his first altar in the Promised Land. This is where he received his divine promise where God said, To you and your offspring, I will give this land. Jacob bought a parcel of a field here, and he settled with his household. And he purged his family from all other idols by burying the household gods they had with them. He declared his full allegiance to the one true God in this place. Lots of other historic events happened here, but now this area is just a byway. It's just a place that religious people pass through as fast as they can. But it's here that Jesus decides to stop. The presence of Christ is resting in a spot that religious people try to avoid. Let's think about that for a minute. Don't you just love Jesus? He decides to rest his feet in a place that religious people don't want to touch with a ten-foot pole. But you see, he knows the full story about this place. And he knows that God's still at work here. That's incredible to me. Where are the places that the church avoids today? Maybe different political issues, sexuality issues, ethnic or gender issues. Could it be that these may be places that we're being invited to stop? And find out what Jesus is wanting to do here. Maybe you're on the other side of this and you have some places within you that you're afraid people in the church would want to avoid. Maybe you've experienced rejection already from religious people. Can I tell you this morning that Jesus isn't afraid to sit there with you? He knows your full story. And he knows that God's not done with you. Let's keep going. It's high noon and it is hot where Jesus is. And his disciples have gone to find some lunch as he sits by the well. Verse 7 through 9 says, The Samaritan woman came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone to town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Wells in that day were typically meeting places for women and servants to come and draw water and to get the news, the gossip. And the typical times they came were early morning and evening before the sun went down, cooler parts of the day. The fact that this woman is coming at high noon could possibly mean she had a water emergency in her home, but more than likely, it's because she didn't want to be around any of those people. 
for whatever reason, when she comes, it's here that she encounters Jesus, and he asks her for a drink. See, Jesus doesn't just stop in a place that religious people don't usually go to, but then he talks to a Samaritan woman, and he asks her for a drink. In doing this, he completely ignores cultural norms, and he's interacting with someone who's usually marginalized or completely ignored by Jews. Not only is he talking to her, but he's asking her for a drink, and the woman is visibly surprised. Her response says so. How can you ask me for a drink? Jews do not associate with Samaritans. That's a key phrase there. Jews do not associate with Samaritans. If you look at the original language there, it actually means Jews do not share dishes with Samaritans. Who would be considered unclean. See, this woman at the well didn't have a stack of Dixie cups with her. (laughs) Oh, you want some water? Okay. Giving him a drink would mean that he would either drink out of her ladle or her pitcher. His lips would touch where hers had also been. This was not done. Jesus was crossing a line. In addressing the Samaritan woman, Jesus honored humanity. He saw her, and he acknowledged her existence. In asking her for a drink, he communicated that she had something valuable to offer that he was willing to receive. Who are the people that we overlook and that we don't associate with? Introverts? People we label awkward or weird? Social outcasts? Homeless people? Gay people? Disabled people? Republicans? (laughs) Democrats? (laughs) As many people as we have in this room, we can all have our own answer. But by looking at Jesus' example, I believe he shows us a way to see the humanity of those who may be very different from us. But despite our differences, we can find a way to treat them with dignity. Have you ever felt marginalized? I have. Have you ever felt like you don't have anything to offer? I have. If you have, you know how healing it is when someone sees you and takes you seriously. If that's you today and you feel invisible or like you don't have anything to offer, can I tell you that Jesus sees you? Your life matters. And you carry something valuable to him. Well, let's get back to our conversation at the well. This woman is really confused why Jesus wants to talk to her. And Jesus just uses that confusion to introduce her to an opportunity for a spiritual conversation. In verse 10, Jesus says, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's asking you for a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. We know from John 37 and 38, 38 and 39, that living water means the Holy Spirit. It says in that passage that Jesus says, Whoever believes in me, 
The scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And by this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. This is incredible to me. The Spirit had not yet been poured out, but Jesus was inviting this woman to taste of that. He was inviting her and offering her a taste of things to come. The woman answers him in verses 11 and 12, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and this well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well, and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock? You see, Jesus is telling her more and more about himself and asking her to receive from him, but this brings up her disbelief. How can you do this? In her mindset, he's offering her something that's impossible to deliver. She's looking through a literal lens, and the limitations of the real world make Jesus' offer for living water seem impossible. Isn't it great that doubt doesn't stop Jesus? He just continues to invite her to know him. And he answers her in verses 13 through 15. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming to draw water. Can you hear Jesus stirring up this woman's spiritual thirst? And it's beginning to work, but she still doesn't quite get it. She's intrigued to know more and experience what Jesus has to offer, although she still doesn't get that it's spiritual. She's drawn by a physical need. Some commentaries think that the woman at this point gets sarcastic with Jesus. It would be like, oh, give me this kind of water so I don't have to come here and draw every day. But, you know, that doesn't change the story. If she was snarky, <laughs> it didn't stop Jesus. Thank God Jesus doesn't stop with us when we get snarky with him. Have you ever had an area in your life where you wanted to see Jesus provide in a certain way and he didn't quite do it that way? That's basically my testimony. <laughs> we tend to have our ideas of what the answer he brings is going to look like. But in the end, those ideas are so surface and so temporal. And in those times that we're wondering where he is, he's right in front of us, inviting us closer to know him more intimately. But we're just hung up on our agenda, some physical need or some way we think he's supposed to come through. There's an old chorus that I used to sing in church that this reminds me of. It says, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. It's easier said than done, isn't it? But Jesus doesn't stop to explain to the woman the difference between literal and figurative language. 
Okay, honey, when I say water, I mean spirit, all right? Are we good? Nope, he doesn't do that. He just keeps taking the conversation deeper. In verse 16 through 18, he says to her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Things are starting to get personal, aren't they? Through Jesus telling the woman to go and get her husband and bring him back, he's awakening her conscience. And he's inviting her to honesty and openness. This life that she's living is most likely the reason she's coming to draw water at high noon. There's probably a lot of shame that she has around the way she's living. But notice, Jesus does not condemn her. Even though she's had five husbands and is currently living with a man, he acknowledges her honesty. When Jesus, the light of the world, comes near to us, he illumines everything. We don't just see him better, but we begin to see ourselves better. He begins to highlight places to us that need more of his healing touch. Often those are places that we've kept hidden. Maybe we feel shameful about them. There are things that we may not want others to know about us. They may be things that we don't want to know about us. But Jesus calls us into the light. He invites us to honesty. Well, back at the well, things are getting clearer for the woman. In verse 19 through 24, it says, she says, Sir, I can see you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and now has come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman can see that Jesus is a holy man, and this is now a spiritual conversation. So she brings up their religious differences. This would normally be the end of the discussion, but Jesus is unfazed. He cuts through all the distracting details and calls her to the one thing that matters, worshiping God in spirit and in truth. That means that through Jesus, it's no longer about the place or the method, but it's about worshiping God through the fullness of the spirit, that river of living water he told her about, that's alive in us and telling us the truth of who Jesus is. No hiddenness. We can make things so complicated, can't we? Even today in the church, there's so many distinctives within different denominations and non-denominations that can divide us. But when Jesus shows up, he takes everything down to the main thing. 
believing and receiving the truth of who he is, our Lord, our Savior, our Messiah, and worshiping him through the witness of the Holy Spirit within us. Can you imagine how huge and undivided the family of God will be when we really get that? I'm excited for that. Well, the Samaritan woman may still not have the full picture of who Jesus is saying he is, but she's beginning to hear some things that she knows that only the Messiah would be able to do. So in verse 25 and 26, the woman says, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will show us everything. Then Jesus declared, I, the one who is speaking to you, I am he. Boom. (laughs) He shares the full truth of who he is with this woman. And she's left to decide what to do with it. At this time, the disciples return, which probably is why the conversation ended. But verse 28 says, then leaving her water jar, she's not thirsty anymore. She goes back to town and says to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of the town and made their way toward him. I want to stop here and tell you that the fact that Jesus shared his full identity with a woman is a beautiful thing and also something that went against culture. In that day, the testimony of a woman was not considered credible. The Talmud said that any evidence which a woman gives is not valid to offer. Therefore, men in the first century didn't give much credence to a woman's testimony. But we see in this case that her whole village believed her. And they went and found Jesus and urged him to stay two more days with them. In verse 42, it says, they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. Through a simple conversation about water, Jesus created space for a Samaritan woman to meet her Messiah. And through her testimony, an entire village believed. You know, when it comes to sharing Jesus, we want to make it about a method or a script. But this account shows us two main ways that we all have to share Jesus. One is just by creating space for people to encounter him. And the other is by sharing our testimony I want to share with you about a time when I saw both these things in a powerful way. For 17 years, my husband and I lived in Oregon, and we worked at a Bible college there. And as Christians in the Pacific Northwest, we were somewhat of a minority. Washington and Oregon have often been listed as some of the least church states in the U.S. But it's a place where people who grew up in the 60s, in the hippie era, and other non-conventional people go to put down their roots and raise their families. They're wonderful people, very spiritual and real thinkers. Our kids regularly had friends who had absolutely no context for church or Jesus. But spirituality was huge. Eastern religions, Wicca, whatever. As a born and bred church girl, I felt this cultural divide and I didn't know how to cross it. I really wanted to tell people about the hope in my heart. 
but I didn't know how to get to that place. During that time, I went through a season where I kept getting a dream, and I knew it was from God, but I hadn't paid much attention to my dreams because of the secular ways I'd seen them interpreted in the past. But I searched out a Christian ministry called Streams Ministries that was led and founded by John Paul Jackson. He's since passed away. But as I took classes that taught on hearing God's voice, I realized that I'd been hearing God all my life in my dreams in pictures in my head that I would get. And I realized through this training that God was giving me a key of how to reach out to those unchurched people that I felt so separated from. You see, people don't always want to talk about Jesus right off the bat, but they will tell you their dream, or they'll show you their tattoo. And those things often have a deep meaning. And they can start a conversation that leads to places where Jesus is wanting to meet with them. So through learning how to hear God through dreams and metaphors, I got my invitation to go into my Samaria, a place where the church doesn't usually go. Streams Ministries at the time had prophetic evangelism outreaches at different New Age fairs and at an event called Burning Man. I was invited to be part of the team for several of these events, but I want to share with you about Burning Man because our approach there was really fashioned after what Jesus did with the woman at the well. Burning Man is an event that happens each August in the Nevada desert. They call it an extreme experiment in community and self-reliance. It's basically a place where anything goes. There's a really high entrance fee to get in, but after that, most everything inside the gate is free. You bring everything you need to survive, your food, your clothing, your shelter, and if you run out of anything, you either do without it or you find someone who's willing to share. Our team did not take our journey lightly. We weren't going into the desert to play church. We knew that there was going to be warfare So each of the team members had to take several classes, and they also had to assemble a group of intercessors that were willing to pray just for them before, during, and after the burn. Each team member had to have permission from his or her pastor to go, because it's important that they were part of a body of believers. And they also had to have permission from their spouse if they were married. It took my husband, Dave, a while to give me permission to go for the first time because he knew some of the things I might see. He was concerned for me. You can find just about anything you want to in Burning Man. Drugs, sexual experience, spiritual experience, incredible art. Clothing is optional, but we wore our clothes. Each year, a huge wooden statue of a man is erected in the center of the camp, and the last night of the event, that structure is set on fire. We leave before this, because it's usually just all about the party at that point. Some people are coming to party all week, but most of the people are coming to find a place to belong. You might expect that it would be full of transient type of people, but the norm is that the people there are very professional Scientists, civil engineers, doctors, nurses, musicians, students from all over the world. Last year, 70,000 people came for the week. 
But I learned in this place that there are people thirsty for the living water that only Jesus gives. I want to show you some slides from my experience. The first one that we're going to show is the aerial view of the camp. They lay it out like the face of a clock so that if you get lost, you just go back to where your camp is. Ours was like at 445 in Skeleton. So you find Skeleton Street and go to 445. So it's less likely that you'll get lost. You would think in this kind of an event that it would totally trash the place. But there's such a value on environment that everybody picks up all their stuff. And if you don't, you aren't invited. You aren't allowed back in the next year. But a month after, you can't even tell anything happened. That's part of what they're excited about. It's like it never happened, right? This is the middle of a dry riverbed. There's no life whatsoever there. There's not even flies. But it's covered with a fine, silty dust that covers the ground, and the wind often causes storms. So we have goggles and masks that we can put on if that happens. Next picture. This is a picture of that wooden man. It's actually a structure, a building, that you can go and find shade under. And he's wired with lights. At night, he lights up. It's really quite a wonderful sight. He marks the middle of the camp. But the last night, that whole thing is burned down to the ground. Next one. On the left there, that's an example of the incredible art. That woman looking skyward is made completely with metal, just chain. And then on the right, that's a, another picture of the man. Next picture. There's also a temple that they erect every year. It's also made completely of wood. And they burn this down the night before the last night. And people go in there, and they can write on the wall. And the next slide, there's a picture of one of the walls. And one of the things there, it says, Grandma, I'm so sorry that we were so distant. I know you tried. Please forgive me. I should have tried harder. But you see, it's just very sobering to walk around and see what people are carrying. And then kind of in, a, in an act of, to bring hope to people, they burn all this down the night before the last night. On the next slide, it shows you that we camp in tents. So we're 10 days in tents using porta-potties, blah. Um, and uh, no showers in those 10 days. It's an act of love to be there. <laughs> that larger tent in the background is our encounter tent where we invite people that want to have more of a spiritual experience. Next picture. This is going into Burning Man. For people that are going in for the first time, you're called a Burning Man virgin. <laughs> and they tell you to ring the bell. You can hear all weekend long, you can hear the bell ringing, which means someone's coming in that hasn't been there before. They told me to ring the bell four times. So when I rang the bell, I was declaring that the Spirit was coming in, the Holy Spirit was coming in from the north, the east, the south, and the west. Next page, next slide. And then this nice little wizard man gave me a hug <laughs> and said, welcome home. He, quite, he encouraged us to lay down on the ground and make some sand angels, so we did. Next picture. Okay, this was our purpose. We were a place to get water. 
And in the desert, when it's 110 degrees, people want water. So on the bottom one here, you can come and just refill your water bottle. You can get a water bottle from us. Or if you're on a party car passing by, our guys in the black t-shirt there will spray you down. <laughs> people are just like, yeah, <laughs> spraying them with water, which it's important. The next slide, where there's water, there's coffee. Yes. And this is what we're really famous for. Down at the lower one on the left, that's our coffee dome. And that's what draws people to our camp. Um, on the right is our main coffee barista. His name is Fish. And in the top left, you'll see some of our workers there in the morning. The next slide shows people lined up to get their drink in the morning. And then the next slide after that shows the inside of our coffee dome. And this is a place that we want to be a safe place. A lot of young people in particular that come to Burning Man don't know what they're going to experience, and it's overwhelming. It can be alarming. So a lot of them will come in there and sit down and just say, this feels safe. I just need to be here. And they'll sit there all day, and that's fine with us. We have some of our workers in there just wandering around, talking to people, creating space, right, to have a conversation. The woman with the leaves on her head in the upper left hand, she paints on people, and she asks the Holy Spirit, show me a picture about who this person, how you see this person. And often that leads to a deeper discussion. Next picture. There's a line out the door pretty quick. People find out about us. And remember, it's 110 degrees outside, so we're passing out water. We're apologizing for the wait. And quite frequently we'll hear, we've heard that it's worth it. Next picture. If you decide to go into the encounter tent for a deeper spiritual experience, we have a menu board. And it tells you what you can choose from. There's spiritual encounters, which is encountering creator's touch. That's what we call it. Destiny direction, which is a prophetic word. Healing touch, which is a prayer for healing. Spiritual cleansing, which is deliverance. Dream interpretation. Life readings, which is a word of knowledge. Now, why don't we make up that menu board with all of our church words on there? We speak Christianese. Do you know that? <laughs> And if you're new to church, you know that. And there's a lot of things that you have to have explained to you. We go in trying to speak their language as much as possible. A lot of people have also been hurt in church. But we find that when we explain the truth of Jesus in their language, it can reopen their heart to connect with him. And those necklaces there that you see, if a person has an experience, we give them a necklace to remember. It's a way to remember. Next slide. That's our camp in the morning when we're praying around, dedicating the day to the Lord. And then on the right-hand side, that's us beginning to see people. We don't water down the truth, even though we're speaking in their language. We're encouraged when we go in to look at the different words that God calls himself. Creator, Spirit living water, peace, father of lights, <laughs> and to begin to use those. Jesus did this with the woman at the well. He said living water and then spirit, and then he told her he was Messiah. 
So just like Jesus kept nudging the woman closer and closer to know him more completely, we try to do the same. Once a person experiences a touch from the one true God, nothing else they're going to experience that weekend is going to match that. They're marked. We work from morning till evening in our tents, and there's lines out the door like you saw. Hundreds of people are touched every day. Some people look at this kind of outreach, and they kind of negatively judge it because there aren't always a lot of salvations. The first year I went, we had four people decide to come to Christ. But the next two years I went, we saw even more, and that's because people came back to Burning Man, and their first visit was to come and see us. They remembered what they had experienced, and they wanted more. See, there's a process of God working on our spirit. And if we take someone who's just beginning to experience God and try to force them to make a decision for Christ right then, we can actually keep anything from ever happening. What we are trying to do there is meet each person right where they are and give them the experience of God's love in that place. We're going to go as far as they're willing to go. Next one. You don't always get to choose your neighbors. Our camp is wherever they assign us to. And this is the first year I went. We had a pole dancing place right by our camp. The name of it there, if you can see, it's Polegasm. <laughs> Hello. Um, so we're looking at this as they're putting it up. And uh, we just pray, Holy Spirit, keep whatever happens there from being a distraction of what you want to do here. And there was a really nice man that was in charge of this place that sat in a lazy boy lounger <laughs> all weekend long but not one person came and danced on his pole they came and they chatted with him he was happy as a lark we got to know him but nobody danced on his pole God took care of it next one these are just some pictures of people experiencing the spirit of truth all we would say is come spirit of truth and they could tell. Yeah. Next one. One more. This is a young man that came and had been so hurt from the church. And his team decided they needed to wash his feet. And let me tell you, when you're at Burning Man, I didn't take my shoes off. Because when you do, oh, it smells so bad. You've just been in the desert and your feet are, they don't smell good. So this man was sobbing as they peeled off the layers of his socks and his sturdy boots because of the love. The love. They didn't care what he smelled like. They just wanted to bring healing to him. It was a really powerful moment. Next one. Just more pictures of experiencing the power of the one true God in the middle of the desert where people don't go to meet with him. <laughs> Next one. Uh, our team had to break up into smaller groups because we had such a line. And one day I was paired up with a woman, uh, just the two of us, two women. And for some reason we kept getting young men. We, you just take the next one in line. And it was always young men. It wasn't necessarily this young man, but men like that age. And 
I kept looking at them and seeing that God had a destiny for them to be men of integrity, that were good dads and good husbands. And I thought, you know, that's so square to be a grandma and go out in the desert. But I looked at this young man and I said to him, when I look at you, I see somebody with a great destiny to be a father and a good wife, a good husband to your wife, a man of integrity. And he looked at us and he said, ladies, you are changing the planet. <laughs> and I just thought, you know, just to simply deliver the Lord's hope and destiny into someone changes the planet. So they went and got their friends, and we had a long line of young guys all day long that needed hope from a couple of moms in the desert. <laughs> Next one, more pictures of just people receiving a touch. This is called a father's blessing. And this is something that we added to our menu the first year I was there because the first time it was done kind of impromptu by our leader, that's one of them right there, and it was so popular that people were coming and asking for it. But it's a prolonged hug while someone is blessing you through all the stages of your life. So it would go like, when you were conceived, your creator was so excited that you were a girl. It's exactly what he made you to be. And when you were born, I was so excited and I said to everybody, I have a daughter. And you go up through toddler. It's, it's a lengthy hug. But by the time it's done, there's snot on everybody. <laughs> it's just amazing. This is one young man getting a father's blessing. And in the next picture, this is a young woman. And frequently we have young women come in the tent uh, that don't have a shirt on. But once they get a blessing or a touch, they come back the next day, and we didn't tell them they had to have their clothes on and they have a shirt on. And this young woman is getting a father's blessing from one of our founders. Next one. Uh, people find out, found out that we were going a day early, and so they start streaming, and, and they're very sad that we're leaving, but they want to give us a gift of some kind. Young people at the top wrote a song and wanted to play it for us. Some of our team on the left and on the right, that's the team playing. We had a hula hoop person come and just want to perform a hula hoop. We had a fire dancer want to come and just dance with fire for us, but they're doing that to honor what God had done in their lives. And then the last picture, this is our team getting ready to go home, and we smell terrible. But we're so happy. We're so happy. So why am I sharing all these slides with you and making, me, making you sit through my slideshow? Because the love of God is wider and deeper than any of us can imagine. His spirit is calling out all over the earth to those who are hungry and thirsty for living water. And you and I, those of us that know Jesus, we're carriers of that living water. And we get the honor of cooperating with the Holy Spirit and inviting those we meet to experience his love. Sometimes we're just planting a seed. It might be the first seed ever planted. Sometimes we get to bring in a harvest. 
But two main ways that that's done is just by creating space for people to meet with Jesus. And the other way is going by telling others about our encounter with him. Where are you this morning? Maybe you need a fresh touch from Jesus. Maybe you feel dry or burned out. Maybe there's some shame or hurt that's gotten in the way from you, fully realizing how much he loves you. Can I tell you, he's right here in our midst, and he's just waiting to meet with you. Maybe you feel like God is calling you to tell your testimony to someone specific he's bringing to your mind. Or maybe there's a group of people. Can I also invite you to encounter God this morning and let him stir that up in you? I want to bless you this morning in a prayer. Can I do that? Thank you, Jesus, that you are in our midst. As many people as there are here this morning, you are there with each one of them. With whatever they carried in this morning, you're not put off by it. For those that are overwhelmed or burdened, you're there. For those that feel shame, you're there. For those that may feel fear or worry, you are there. To those that have concerns, you're there. For those who have doubts, you're there. I thank you that you do many, many things at once really well. And so I bless each person you hear into the story that you've written just for them to walk out. And I thank you for the ways that you're meeting with each one of them this morning. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.